the relationship that God gives to his people uh, extends obviously to our children in the sense that God has made a covenant with his people. We see that happening in the Old Testament and God who keeps his promises makes this what we call new covenant that we experience through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And certainly a piece of that extends to our family. As my daughters grow, they don't have a choice. They're going to be taught about the Christian faith, and our prayer is that they come to Christ in faith and become a part of his body, join the church. Obviously, uh, Josephine cannot do that. I didn't, she wasn't talking to me there. She wasn't even crying. She was doing a great job. Uh, she's off to a good start. I'm not sure what kind of sleeper she is, but she did a great job up here. All right, she sleeps all night, good. One of them ought to, right, after all those? So it's a special privilege of ours as Christian parents to help our children grow, and it's a blessing to grow in a Christian family, or it ought to be. That's part of the blessings of being uh, connected to a, a church And God extends that blessing not just to Ted because he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but my daughters at a very early young age will be introduced to the Lord. And then our prayer is that they continue to grow in faith and become a part of his body when they can stand before a group of people and profess faith in Christ. That whole process, that whole covenant that God has made, that gift as I said multiple times, is an awesome responsibility. It takes a lot of sacrifice to make that happen. And something that's lost on, I think, the American church is that the number one thing we can do for our children is introduce them to Jesus. That is the best thing you can provide for your child as they're growing up in your house. Their belief, their religion, their faith should not just be, well, you figure it out by yourself. It should be something that is given to them, a gift, training. That's why it's called this awesome responsibility because we believe that is the most important decision you'll make the rest of your life. And so that takes sacrifice. That takes hard conversations. That takes helping them realize life doesn't revolve around them. It does not mean you're always their favorite person in the world and That's hard sometimes. But that word sacrifice is an important word as we just observed this service and also just for us to remember in general. I used that word because for Veterans Day, if you've done any recognition and hopefully you've recognized those vets in your life and just whether or not, I mean, we've all, if you're a vet, you've all served with guys that are knuckleheads. Like, I know when I was in the Navy, there's more guys that, figured out the best place to take a nap on the ship where you can't find them than to actually do the work they were supposed to do. So just because you serve in the armed forces doesn't mean you're an honorable person, but you did something honorable. It's an act worthy of saying, hey, they're willing to leave their home, leave their family, and in some cases put themselves in harm's way, deploy forever, however long, their family sacrificing, that's an honorable thing to do. That's why we recognize those who have served, not because they're the greatest guy or girl in the world, but because this decision meant they were willing to put someone else, people they've never met, 
above themselves by trying to serve uh, the country in which they're from, the nation in which they're born to. That word is sometimes, I think, a word that we forget about when we come to the Christian life. Because our life, the Christian life, is one of sacrifice. Paul's going to address this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But I want to kind of draw this out and the importance of it and the fact that losing sight of this really can mess up the church. Losing sight of who we are called to be as Christians, and certainly this word as our lives are about sacrifice, can really mess up the church. That's really what Paul was addressing in chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. But I want to, before we get there, I want to ask you a question that came to me from this book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I don't have lots of time to read nowadays, uh, but I've been trying to read this book because I have heard the author talk about it. I heard him on a couple different podcasts. It was very interesting to, me, interesting to me, and I think it had a lot of relevance into what we're currently experiencing in our world. The author's name is Carl Truman. Uh, I believe he's a professor at Grove City College, and as I said, uh, the title of the book is The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self. And he uh, is kind of addressing an issue of a, a change, a shift that has taken place in dramatic ways. And uh, the question that he points out in this shift is that if somebody made a statement like this to his grandfather, his grandfather would think there is something wrong. That this person wakes up today and I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And that statement, he said, is very new, and his grandfather would have been like, what are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense, but why does it make sense to our culture? So that's kind of the question he's trying to unpack, and of course, you know, that book's like 300 plus pages, so he's trying to unpack it in a very thorough way. But he asked a question in here that I think gets at something that we experience in our culture that maybe we don't even realize. And because we experience it, it's the culture we're swimming in. It has the ability to kind of seep into our thinking, seep into the church itself. Because just like you know, a fish, a fish doesn't realize it's swimming in water, it just is. That's what its natural habitat is. And when you take it out of water, Obviously, well, it doesn't think about, hey, I'm out of water. I need to get back in water. But it doesn't realize it needs water to survive. It just swims in it. That's kind of how culture works. We're just swimming in it every day. You're going to get up. You're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to do, you're going to go hunting tomorrow. You're going to do whatever you do tomorrow. And every day is like the next day. And you're swimming in this and you don't even realize it. And he brought up uh, an, an example out that really stuck with me. And, and I thought, you know what? That's exactly what I see a lot of, and it's really the opposite of what I see happening within the scriptures of who God's called us to be, but it has infiltrated so much of our culture, and if we're not careful, it actually can seep into the church. So here's the, the question that he posed in his book about job satisfaction. So if I had to ask you to rate your job satisfaction today on a scale from 1 to 10 being 1, I hate my job, I wish I could quit tomorrow, to 10, 
I love this. I don't believe I get to do this. It doesn't even feel like work. That's my, I'm a 10. I love this. I don't even, it doesn't even feel like work to me. So rate your job. If you're retired and your job is I get up whenever I want to get up, I see my grandkids when I want to see them, I go hunting when I want to hunt, I go golf when I want to golf, good for you. How about when you had your job? What was your job satisfaction? Okay, so get that scale in your head, 1 to 10, see what it is. Um, Now, here's the next thing. What determines whether or not you're satisfied or dissatisfied with your job? So let's say you set an 8. Why is it an 8? Your job satisfaction is an 8, which is great. Why is it an 8? Let's say it's a 2. Why is it a 2? What determines whether or not you're satisfied or dissatisfied with that job? So now think about how you would determine that job satisfaction. What was running through your mind when you were trying to figure out whether or not that job satisfied you? Carl Truman in his book, and of course he's going to spend 300 plus pages unpacking all this. We don't have that kind of time. But what he's doing is saying just the answer to that question really gets at the heart of how we perceive ourselves. Is it an inward or an outward thing? Do I perceive myself and my job satisfaction based upon my own feelings, how I think about that, how it works for me, whether I like it, whether I don't like it, how do I determine that? Or is it based upon others, my community, uh, my family, my country? Like, what do you base that satisfaction on? And when he drew this example for me, it was just, like a light bulb went off in my head and I said, yes, this is a part of what we are all swimming in and we don't even realize it is just the way that it is. But I think it's important for us to recognize it can have some detrimental effects in our world. It certainly is already, I would say, but in the church as well. So if you asked Carl Truman's grandfather, now Carl Truman happens to be British, His grandfather, I don't know if Carl Truman grew up in the UK, but his grandfather grew up in the UK. And at 15, Carl Truman's 57, so his grandfather, I don't know how old he was when he's coming to think of this. I'm thinking of my own grandfather. You can think of maybe one of yours. Carl Truman happens to be 57. So he's comparing himself to his grandfather who probably was born in the 20s, maybe, or the the teens uh, as these two different compare and contrasts. If you asked his grandfather about job satisfaction, his grandfather uh, quit school at 15 and went to work in a steel factory because he had to help provide for his family. So then as he grew older, had his own family, you know, wife, kids, that kind of thing, and you asked him about his job satisfaction, Carl Truman says in his book, number one, he might not even understand the question. What do you mean am I satisfied with my job? This is, what I'm, this is just what you do. This is how life works. But if he did understand the question, here's how his grandfather, he's saying, would respond. His needs, his grandfather's needs, meaning his job satisfaction, were based upon those of his families. Is, he enabling, is his job enabling him to meet the needs of his family? If so, his work gave him satisfaction. His grandfather viewed himself in relation to his family and to his community. 
Now, the example that I used uh, yesterday when I was giving my presentation at the church I grew up in for a men's breakfast on Veterans Day, I've used this example with our guys here at a men's breakfast. I asked those guys, what causes a 16-year-old kid to lie about his age to go die on some beach somewhere? What causes an 18-year-old kid who has just graduated, who has his whole life ahead of him, to sign up to serve in the military, to very likely leave his home family country and never come back again to die on a plot of land he probably couldn't find on a map? Now, what is it that causes that? This was just the culture these folks were swimming in. If I was just talking about an individual, what causes Ted to do X? You could try and determine that. But what if you're talking about a whole society? And of course, I'm referencing the generation that served in World War II. You're talking about kid after kid after kid after kid. Young family person after young family person after young family person. Guy who probably was beyond military age but signed up anyway. What what explains an entire society to go do something like that? It was the culture they were swimming in. They viewed themselves in relation to others. His grandfather's job satisfaction was based upon whether or not I'm caring for my family. And that's how you knew he was satisfied or not. Carl Truman, speaking for himself, if you asked him that question, here's how he probably would respond. Carl is, happens to be a professor, has worked at many different colleges, does lots of teaching, and he says, does my job give me pleasure? Do I enjoy what I'm doing? Do I like getting up every morning and going to the place that I work? Now, he's speaking honestly for himself, and he's basing that scale from one to ten off of, does my job give me pleasure? Do I enjoy this? Does it make me happy? Do I find personal fulfillment in what I'm doing? So one of the examples he used was he's a teacher. So he just loves it when that student has that light bulb go off and is like, yes, something I've just said, they are getting it. I feel fulfilled in what I'm doing. Now again, I'm not saying you should hate your job. What I'm saying is our view of job satisfaction has changed. And you ask anybody younger than Carl Truman, he's 57, on down, you're definitely going to get this kind of response. There's a reason why so many people are quitting jobs. There's a reason why at many of the businesses you're a part of, you can't keep people. They're on for two weeks and then you got to get somebody else. They're on for a month and then you got to get somebody else. After I made that statement yesterday at this group of guys about the contrast between those who's lied about their age to go die on a beach somewhere and today, one of the guys sent me an article uh, that he had just read, uh, I think from November, talking about the lack of and the problem that the military has in recruiting. Fewer and fewer people are joining and fewer and fewer people, when asked, say they would join if something dramatic happened that caused us to have to do something like that. The, the contrast is very stark. And Carl Truman is making the argument that it, it has a lot to do with how we view ourself. Because the self and my autonomy, my freedom, 
has now superseded anything else good, and the greatest good within the American context is whether or not I have pleasure in my job, I enjoy what I'm doing, I'm feeling personally fulfilled, I can express myself for who I really am, and so that's why we can make statements like, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, because your self-expression is the greatest good. That's called self-autonomy. Nobody and nothing, no institution is going to change the way you think about yourself. And Carl Truman pointed this out for me. This was just like, it made so much sense to me. If I, you know, thought about my dad, who is 79. And for 40 plus years, he got up every morning about, 5.30 in the morning, drove to New Holland where they made tractor parts and tractor equipment and worked in the maintenance office. And um, I mean, there's probably other things he'd really love doing, but I mean, that's 40 years of his life. Job satisfaction looked different to a different culture. It's just what they were swimming in. And today, we're swimming in a very different culture. We're swimming in a culture that actually fights against marriages. It's doing its best job. There's a group of us going to the the weekend to remember, the marriage retreat, to just focus on our marriage. And there's a whole big culture out there who's doing a great job in trying to destroy marriages. It's not that important. In fact, I was watching, not because I wanted to, but because the girls like Fuller House. Do you know Fuller House? So Full House, you know, Full House, do you have anybody ever seen the show Full House? Okay, they made another show called Fuller House because nobody can come up with an original thought anymore. We just rerun and rehash everything from years ago. So in Fuller House, there is a character, uh, one of the daughters in high school, and uh, the one episode, we watched it last night. So uh, DJ, Stephanie, and... Uh, Kimmy, thank you. <laughs> I thought it was Kimmy. DJ, Stephanie, and Kimmy are all getting married. And so Kimmy's daughter makes a comment to the three of them and says, you know how famously against I am the institution of marriage. And I'm like, why? What, what has marriage ever done to you? And what, what would replace that? What replaces these two peoples who are these two people who are making a lifelong commitment to one another for your benefit? Because we can see we don't have to look very hard to see what happens in a culture that starts destroying it. It's a building block to human civilization. Go back to Genesis one. I guess God thinks it's kind of important. When he created the world and he created human beings, the next thing that happened is he's going to leave, she's going to leave, they're going to come together, and we're going to call that marriage. And at one time, we just saw that as a lifelong commitment, a vow that I'm making. I don't feel very loving today, but I made a promise, and my satisfaction doesn't come from how I feel, but whether or not I keep my promise. See, it's based on something else than my personal fulfillment. And Carl Truman is saying that has completely changed in our culture. And what I'm suggesting is 
we're not immune from that as the church. It, it permeates everything we do, every show you watch. So now I should have a conversation with my daughter who watched that, who heard that daughter. I mean, it's Fuller House. It's a fun show. They have a good time. What does the institution of marriage even mean, and why is she against it? Should I be against it? She's a kid my age. She's kind of cool. I like her. So what is this whole institution of marriage thing? And how many millions of people watched it? And how many millions of people just don't think about it? It's everywhere. It's the culture we're swimming in, and if we're not careful, Paul tells us it can affect you and the church and your witness to the world around you. He says in Philippians, it's a letter that he writes to a group of people in a city called Philippi. He might as well have just wrote it to Schuylkill Haven. I opened the letter up. Hey, we got a letter from Paul today. Here's what it says. That's what's going on here in the church in Philippi. He wrote a letter. A group of Christians gathers together, and here's some of the things he has to say. Now, we're coming at it midway through the letter in chapter 2. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's talking about our embracing of the gospel giving our lives over, confessing Jesus as Lord and what that means in our lives. Therefore, if you have any encouragement as a result of you group of people who are gathered here together because of Jesus, that's why we're here, if you have any encouragement being united with Christ, being part of his body, if any comfort from his love, what we've experienced through the forgiveness of sin, if any common sharing in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that he gave Peter, James, and John, and those guys, he has given us that Spirit indwells each one of us if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so there is commonality in sharing of this same Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, what we experience within the life of the church, the life of the body, if you've got any of that, Paul is talking to a church that's having some issues, particularly between two people. There's some division in the church, and this group's kind of siding with this person, and this group's kind of siding with this person. It happens to be two ladies in the church, is what commentators tell us, is what Paul's letter is revealing to us. And so now we're getting factions. Well, I'm siding here, and I'm siding here. So he's, he's addressing a specific issue He says, if you've received any of that from coming to faith in Christ, then make my joy complete. It would just do my heart good if you would just be like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. So don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Think about someone else before you think about yourself. That's what he's basically saying there. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So you're kind of thinking about self in relation to the people you're doing life with. And he's saying, think about those people first before you think about yourself. In your relationships with one another, here's what I want you to do. And then he goes on to explain what Jesus did for us. So Jesus' life, his teaching and his life, is our prime example of how we're supposed to live. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about how Jesus gave us the example of how the church ought to operate. His body, who represents him here on planet Earth. 
But before we get there, let's just identify what Paul said here in verse 1 through 5. If what Christ has done, and we listed that for you, Paul put it in the letter, I put it in a nice, neat little one, two, three, four list. If what Christ has done, encouragement by being united with him, we experience not condemnation, but redemption. We've been forgiven of our sin. We've received grace and mercy. That ought to encourage us. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. We ought to experience that in our life, not because of the situation we find ourselves in, because there's something deep-seated in us, this encouragement of being united with Christ. Comfort in His love. We are putting our hope in His unfailing love. What we've done this morning with the service of baptism is talking about a covenant that God has made that cannot be broken because of who God is. And so we are putting our hope in his unfailing love that because of what he has done for us through his son Jesus, we can experience forgiveness instead of separation. We can be reconciled to him. That ought to do something inside of us. Commonality in spirit, we ought to share some commonality together. That's why we use the the terminology church family. Your life ought to be something different when it's experienced within the relationship of the church. And just as I'm trying to live out that fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and uh, gentleness, and self-control, as I'm trying to do that, so are you. And we're sharing this in common. That seems like a pretty good place to do life together. And of course, just experiencing God's touch, His relationship, tenderness, compassion. He's not a God who just spoke the world in existence and said, hey, good luck. He's a God that ministers in a very personal way, who shows, up, who shows up in our life just when we need it. If what Christ has done, everything I just said, means anything to you, if any of that stuff means anything to you, then please do my heart some good, Paul says. Be like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one in mind. Be united, he is saying. Say no to selfish ambition is the word that he used and vain conceit or pride. Say no to those things. And so let me bring in what I led off with, the example I used. You are swimming in a culture every day that says you ought to say yes to those things. In fact, your self-autonomy expression is the greatest good that you have. And don't let anybody tell you different. So if there's some kind of institution, if this school is telling you something different, if the government is telling you something different, if the police force is telling you something different, if the church is telling you something different, self is the most important. Throw all of that off and just tell them they're wrong because they are offending you for them not letting you be your true self. Now that's the culture we're swimming in. And it happens all over the place, it happens every day, and it happens even in the innocent shows that you watch, because they're not exempt from it either. And so pride is kind of putting to bed the idea that everybody else is wrong, and you're right. That you've not done anything wrong in this situation, the reason the job isn't going well, the reason the relationship isn't going well, the reason the marriage isn't going well, the reason the family isn't going well is because of all those people. That's vain conceit and pride. The reason the church is struggling is because of the pastor, 
because of the church leaders, because of all those people. Say no to that, Paul says, and say yes to something different. So I've summarized what you're, you're supposed to say no to. Stop making everything about you. That's what we have to tell our culture. Stop making everything about you. We can learn from our ancestors who we've disparaged in a lot of ways within our culture. Maybe he hated his job, Carl's grandfather. But he kept going day after day, year after year, year after year. Forty years later, his family was cared for. They were safe. He did the best he could for them. He tried to raise them right. His job satisfaction was based on other people, not himself. We're recipients of something that other people thought something was better than themselves, even their own personal safety, even all their hopes and dreams as a 16-year-old, 18-year-old. I'm not saying those people didn't have any faults. What I'm saying is they saw themselves differently than our generations see themselves. And maybe we have something to learn from somebody who was willing to say, I'm going to go someplace and just die for somebody that I've never even met. And somebody that might even forget I ever existed. Paul says, say yes to humility and say yes to valuing others before yourself. Live in a selfless way. You know why he can tell us that? Because of verse 6 through 11. Because this is exactly what Jesus did, who being in the very nature God, Jesus possessed the same deity as, as God. All the attributes we read about in the Old Testament, the very nature of God, all those wonderful, amazing things we say about who God is and his nature, Jesus possessed every bit of that. However, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's talking about Jesus actually being born. Jesus needed his mom and dad to take care of him. Otherwise, he would have died. He was a baby. Jesus needed to rest. You read all the stories in the Gospels. When Jesus left the crowd, he went to the mountainside and he just rested. Jesus got hungry. Jesus experienced the fullness of what it means to be human, and that's part of what we believe the Bible teaches, that Jesus was God and he was human, sharing the very same nature of God but didn't use it to his advantage. Not only did he not use it to his advantage, rather he made himself nothing. He was ostracized from his own family. He was ridiculed. He was beaten. He was even accused of something he never did And he made himself and took on the nature, not of some famous king, but the nature of a servant. In the Greek, doulos can also be translated slave. Being made in human likeness, he experienced what you and I experienced. And Paul says, and being found in the appearance as a man, not only did he experience all that, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. 
What Paul just asked this church to do is the very thing that Jesus did. And so he's basing our life as followers of Christ on what Jesus did for us. And Jesus did that even, as Scripture tells us, while we were yet sinners. Far from Christ, not even caring about Christ, we could come to him in faith and say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I need Jesus to wash those sins away by the shed blood on the cross. God is willing to do that even as we lived in rebellion to him. Some people use the word, the name Jesus Christ as a curse word in our culture, as a word to show derision, as a word to talk about and takes the name of Jesus and throws it right in the mud. Yep, Jesus went to the cross for that person too. They could come to Christ because Jesus gave of himself. He did the exact thing Paul said. He didn't think of himself, but he thought of others. He didn't value his own life, but he valued the lives of others and was willing to be obedient to the plan of redemption by going to that cross. And because he was willing to do that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He gave him God's own name. Those are what all the I am statements are in John's gospel. Jesus is claiming that he and Yahweh are one. Sharing in that same nature. And because that's true, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what Jesus said. Your treasures are not here on earth, but they're stored in heaven. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus is telling us how this all works. And in the church, this should be, if you're from the military, you know there's 8 million different uh, acronyms that you're supposed to know. An SOP. Do you know what an SOP is? Yeah, if you're in the military, you know. It's the standard operating procedure. Maybe you have that at your job. That life, that kind of selflessness, that kind of sacrifice is standard operating procedure in the church. This is not optional, it's the example Christ gave, and it is our way of life. And that becomes very, very important when we swim in a culture that we don't even realize is pushing us in the very opposite direction. Even when we answer an innocent question like, what's your job satisfaction? And I base my answer all about my job satisfaction on Ted. Well, do I feel fulfilled? Do I enjoy it? Am I happy with it? Is it paying me the amount of money I think I deserve and want to be paid? Is it, it's very inward focused instead of God's given me this opportunity to serve others. Am I caring for my family? Am, am I providing for them? Am I leaving what's coming behind me better than what I found it? That's just, that used to be standard operating procedure. It, it's not. We don't realize how much of our Christian belief system permeated all of culture. I'm sorry the historians that tell you the opposite are just plain wrong. 
There's a reason why these people thought this way. And it comes directly from the way that Jesus lived his life and how the church has influenced the world. And now the world is influencing at least the American church. I mean, this is why we have people say, well, the pastor doesn't do this for me. That church doesn't offer this for me. I don't feel this way when I go to church. This isn't happening. And you know what? They're going to go find another church. And that church is the best church that they've ever experienced until none of that stuff happens again. And then they'll go to the next church. Because we've made somehow Christianity about my own personal fulfillment. Now, I certainly want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. And the reality is my growth is contingent upon whether I'm, not, whether I'm doing this well or not. Am I looking to others' interests before my very own? Am I putting my own ambition and personal fulfillment behind and putting others before me? Am I doing that in my relationships at this church? Am I doing that in my relationships with my spouse? Am I doing that at my job? In my community? This has profound implications. We're watching it live, right in front of us. It's real time. It's having profound implications on your marriage right now, hopefully not in the opposite direction. And it's having profound implications on just that article that I read. They can't get people to sign up. God forbid something drastic should happen where we're called upon again to decide, is our way of life, our civilization worth dying for? That's what they had to decide. It scares me to think the answer to that question right now. But certainly within the church, we ought to be living in a sacrificial way. Church, ministry, the Christian life is not about my own personal fulfillment. It's not even about making me feel good. Our lives are really about service to others. And in that way, Paul says, it does his heart good to know that that's happening. One of the things I appreciate about so many at this church is you do live that way. I think that's what makes Grace Church a wonderful family to be a part of because you're willing to put others before yourself. Uh, Just simple stuff that people do. Not that long ago, uh, Sherry and Pearl Yuranko moved here from California and moved into Freedom Manor and they built a house on their family property. And so they had to move from Freedom Manor to this property in Orgsburg. Uh, I don't know if Pearl and Sherry, you want to be lifting all the stuff you have to lift. Probably not. Be pretty hard. But we got some strong backs here. Not strong backs without aches and pains the next morning, but strong backs nonetheless. And they went and helped move Sherry and Pearl into their new place. And then helped moved. I mean, it's a lot when you're moving from California to Pennsylvania, so they helped move some other stuff uh, from their house in, from pods into their home. That took some sacrifice. It was a Saturday. Those guys could have been doing anything on that Saturday, but they chose to help Pearl and Sherry out. The next morning, because I saw them here uh, Sunday morning, and some of them were kind of hunched over a little bit. Most of them took Tylenol or Motrin or Aleve or something the next, that evening. So they had to sacrifice a little bit. They were putting somebody else's needs above their own, somebody else's interests above their own, looking to someone else and how they could help above their own. 
It's not hard, but so little of it happens within our culture. And we've got to realize we're swimming in a culture that is actually telling you the exact opposite. And so maybe you need to rethink your job satisfaction, or at least how do I determine my job satisfaction? Because maybe it's not all about my own personal fulfillment or pleasure or enjoyment or happiness. If you're a mom or a dad, you already know that. It just doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work for you to just try and be the very best friend of your kid. Sure, we want our children to talk to us. We want them to be open. You can create that environment in your home without making them the center of the universe. Living sacrificially is the Christian way of life. There is no other way to do it. It just doesn't work. It's not an option for us, and Jesus is our example of it. And so when we approach the body of Christ, when we approach ministry, when we approach the church, me as a Christian, Paul is saying the way we approach it is by putting those, that other person's interest above our own. Thinking about how my, my actions, my words, the things I say are going to impact this other person because it matters. Actually, the Christian life is about others. This was just an example that was given, just uh, made clear to me as we observe Veterans Day. And uh, also just was made clear to me in, as I shared the book that I'm reading. We need to realize as the church that these kinds of ideas, if we're not careful, will seep into the church and our thinking and our marriages. And I'm, I'm glad there's a group here that's going to be going to the weekend to remember this coming weekend just to say we're going to stop everything and focus a little bit more on our marriage because that attitude can destroy marriage. If it's all about me and my own personal fulfillment and if I'm getting what I need, it can destroy marriage. And it will destroy a church. That's why Paul's writing the letter that he wrote. If, if what Christ has done for you means anything, then do my heart some good and be of one mind, one spirit, one love, putting others' needs above your own, looking out for their interests. It does my heart good to know that there's a group of guys willing to do that and others of you who are, or who are willing to do that. It, it just does my heart good to know that we're willing to serve each other, even in sacrificial ways. And, and the more that we do that, the more we're going to look like Jesus. That's how I believe God grows his church, simply by us being the church we're supposed to be. Imagine if you looked at your job that way. How can I serve this person who doesn't even deserve any of that service or looking out for their interests? What might that do in their life?
Our standard operating procedure is living sacrificially. That's just how it works. And we do that because of all that Christ has done for us. I'm thankful for the many who have done that for us. Uh, Some of them, you can shake their hand. You could shake their hand today because there's some vets in there. Some of them, the way of life you know right now didn't just happen because we crossed our fingers and hoped that it would. People you've never met, people you won't know, provided it for us. God has blessed us in, in a wonderful place to live and raise our families. And if we want to keep it a wonderful place to live and raise our families, it's going to take some work. And, and I want to suggest to you, it's going to take more sacrifice than what we've made thus far. It's going to be challenging. And it's going to happen by raising our children. Raising our children to know and to love Jesus and to live this kind of life. The culture isn't going to teach them anymore. I think it did at one day. That 16-year-old kid lied about his age, went and died on that beach because there was something that he was swimming in that just told him, this is what I'm supposed to do. We're not swimming in that same water anymore. We've got to do it. And we might have to make some sacrifices in order to make that happen. And I believe God will honor those sacrifices and we will experience what we desire to see happen within our families and within our communities. It's not going to happen because you vote for the right person. We just had elections. Yeah, that stuff is good. We need to do voting. I voted too, and I'm sure many of you did. I'm sorry, that's not how things change. It's, it happens here, changing the water we're swimming in. That happens with us right now in our families. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the example that Jesus has given us um, in how we are to live our lives, that because of his love for us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, I'm thankful for that example of selflessness, that example of sacrifice, and Lord, I pray that we as the church here in America, I pray that we as Grace EC Church, God, that we would live out that sacrificial love that Jesus lived out to one another. And God, that we would be able to live that out even in our places of work, even in our families, even on those sports teams. And God, that we would put other people's interests before our own and not do anything out of selfish ambition or pride or think about life is all about us. But Lord, view ourselves in light of our family, in light of our community. God, if what Jesus has done for us means anything, may we live in such a way that we might sacrifice, that we might live selflessly for others, that we might honor his death with the kind of lives that we lead. God, help us to live in honor to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.